Now that I have the kids' attention, I'm going to give you, this is a two-part children's sermon. You need to listen so that you can accomplish both parts of the children's sermon so that you can then, if you bring your paper back to me at the end, I have a small bag of candy to bribe you with, I mean to give you, reward you with. If you were here last week, you may recall that at this time I mentioned how how Ed Mortensen likes to participate in the children's sermons. I asked people, kids, to draw a picture of the story I told. When we gathered the pictures, Ed turned his in. That engineering degree has served him well as an artist. I'm telling you, I've, I, it's a keeper. I have it in my office what he drew with a paralyzed man coming down. So uh, perhaps we'll get it posted somehow so you can see I was quite impressed. And he's not even here to be encouraged by that. So, young people, on your piece of paper, on one side, you need to leave side two blank until we're in the sermon. But on side one, I want you to draw three trees. Here's is important. None of those trees can be a pine tree. No pine trees. It will destroy the children's sermon if you draw a pine tree. Three trees, and here's what else I want you to be thinking of, and you need to be able to point out to me, one of those trees has to be you. Three trees, one of the trees represents you, and most importantly, you have to draw this tree in winter. What does a tree, what's missing from a tree in winter? Leaves. So three trees, no leaves. One of those trees has to represent you. You can start drawing now, and I will tell you what all this means later. Hopefully I can pull it off. For the rest of you, if you're not drawing a tree three trees. I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to James chapter 2. This is part two of a section that we started last week. This entire section covers James 2, 14 through 26. Last Sunday, we covered verses 14 to 20. This morning, we'll be looking at 21 to 26 as we conclude this section where James talks about dead faith and living faith. Last week in that study, we discovered that the Word of God is full of examples, different kinds of faith, different levels of faith. Jesus encountered, even among his closest followers, weak faith. He confronted little faith. But everyone in this room, at one time or another, has experienced from time to time what I described as wobbly faith, wounded faith, weary or frightened faith, and even even stumbling faith. But last week, I made the effort to make the point that even weak, wobbly, wounded faith is still a living faith. Weak faith needs to be strengthened. Wobbly faith needs to be stabilized. 
Wounded faith needs healing. But it is a living faith. However, in this section, James, we're dealing with right now, he introduces a faith that is beyond weak and wounded. It is dead. This faith does not refer to the atheist who claims no faith in God or claims that there's no God. James here is referring to the person, verse 14, who says, I believe. But it is a, it, it is a faith, which James responds in verse 17, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action or faith that is missing what a living faith produces is dead. Because what living faith naturally produces is good deeds, good works, and those are simply a spiritual sign of the reality of the life of God in you. Now, as we come off of that as a background, as a reminder of last week's verses 14 through 20, We come now to verses 21 through 26, and James, having exposed or confronted dead faith, he moves on to begin to define and illustrate living faith. Let me show you, James says, what living faith looks like and how living faith acts. He does this by pointing out to, pointing to two people who embody the essence of living faith, We're only going to look at one this morning. James chapter 2, verse 21. Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. And I have had so much prayer for me this morning, I am not going to pray again. Need to do a little work here. Because if you read these verses, if you camp out for a little while, you'll find that there are some phrases that James uses that could cause you to scratch your head and go, especially if you were here last week, I thought Pastor Tim said that James and Paul are not in conflict regarding this faith and works thing. We're going to have to do a little work before it gets fun because while James uses Abraham as an example to show the importance of works, Paul uses Abraham in Romans 4 as an example to show that that because of faith, he was justified by his faith alone and was declared righteous before God. I need you to flip to Romans chapter 4, verses 2 through 5. Romans 4, verses 2 through 5. 
Romans 4.2, if in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, when a man works his wages, are, excuse me, when a man works his wages, they're not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, if the man who does not work but trust God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited to him as righteousness. Paul says the same thing in Galatians chapter 3, verse 6. Quote, Consider Abraham. He believed God, and it was his belief credited to him as righteousness. Now, to be fair to James, James does say the same thing. Verse 23, James 2, Abraham believed God, and it was, that is, his belief was credited to him as righteousness. Now, I don't know if you're connecting the dots here, but only as I re- even as I read just those verses, it not only seems that James and Paul are in contradiction, it seems like James is in contradiction with himself. Verse 21 Was not Abraham considered righteous by what he did? Verse 24, you see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Verse 23, it seems he says the opposite. Abraham believed God and it was, his belief in God was credited to him as righteousness. All right, here's the solution. James is a little schizo. He was a little off on writing this part of chapter 2, so we're going to skip ahead to chapter 3 because he's pretty good in chapter 3. All right, obviously we need to work here a little bit. So before we even get to the illustration of Abraham, let's confront James. Which is it, James? From your own text, it says you're justified by works and you're justified by faith. Which is it? Work with me. The point that James is trying to make is that there is a blending of the two that you cannot separate. There is a blending of the two that you cannot separate. Abraham was justified by faith, verse 23. By the way, that is a reference to Genesis 15, which we'll get to in a minute. Abraham was justified by faith, verse 23, when he offered up Isaac... Verse 21 is what proves it. See, in verse 23 of James chapter 2, we are told Abraham believed God, and because he believed God, it was credited to him as righteousness, and that truth is absolutely critical for our salvation. What is significant about verse 21, however, is that it shows us that Abraham's faith in God was true. How it was true, because it was not based simply on what he said, but by what he what? By what he did. That's when we knew. That's what James is trying to say in this text. Hang with me. Say it this way. Abraham was proven to be justified by what he did. What he did 
Listen, what he did did not justify him. Rather, what he did proved that he was justified. Say it this way. You are proven to be justified by faith. Let me say it again. You are proven to be justified by your faith through your works. You are proven or verified. You manifest the fact that you are or have been justified by faith by what you do. Paul said it this way in Ephesians chapters 1 through 3. This is who you are. You can't change that. Chapter 4, verse 1, and chapters 4 through 6, this is how you need to live out the reality of who you are. You can't separate the two. We need to walk a worthy walk, not just say, I have one. James chapter 2, verse 22 actually pulls this whole thing together. You see, or here's my point, says James, you see that his faith, Abraham's faith, and his actions were working together. They were cooperating, and his faith was made complete or made perfect by what he did. You see, when faith and action, when faith and works cooperate, the function of the works is that it perfects or proves my faith. What do you mean? Perfect faith. It means to prove it, to fulfill it, to manifest the faith that I have. The faith I have is manifested by what comes from me. What is supposed to come from me as a believer? Fruit. To make visible the faith that is really in me. The function of works, when it cooperates with faith, is it makes living faith Something that people can see. And James is talking about a living faith. It's like a tree, young people. But the tree I want you to picture was the one you've just drawn. Not one in spring or summer, but one in the winter. Because in January, the tree that you've the three trees that you've drawn, you can't tell if one tree is alive or not, can you? When you walk in the woods, when you walk in your front yard in the winter, again, not counting pine trees, when you see a tree in January, you don't know if it's alive or if it's dead. Why? Because there are no leaves. Here's the deal about trees, though. Some of the trees that you see in the winter may be even one of the trees you drew. The trees you see in the winter, some of them could be dead, but you don't know it. How are you able to tell the difference between a dead tree and a tree that's alive? You have to wait till spring. Because it's springtime, the buds come, turn into flowers, blossoms, turn into leaves, and now you can see a tree that's alive, but maybe there's another tree in your yard, or on the golf course, or at grandma's house, 
and there's no leaves in May or June. It's dead. So on the other side of your piece of paper, again, I'll come back to this. One of these trees represents you. On the other side, I need you to draw three trees. Try to make them look the same as the other side, but this time put leaves on them or flowers or blossoms. However it is that in your picture, your trees look what? Alive. Every true, every tree that has life bears fruit. It's just a way that it shows what's invisible. Think of it in the spiritual realm. What's invisible is able to be seen by others. When the fruit pops. <laughs> James's point again is this. If you have the Spirit of God dwelling within you, if you have the divine life of God dwelling within you, it's going to produce something. It's going to produce life. And the evidence of that life of the Spirit of God dwelling within you. You cannot separate faith and works. You cannot separate faith from fruit. You can't separate them. If you try to separate faith from works, and all you have is works, what you wind up with is potentially a lot of good deeds, but all your good deeds still fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. And if you try to separate works from faith, and all you have is faith, but nothing to show for it. What you have is a corpse. James 2, verse 26. You can't separate them. Now, take a look at how Abraham is used by James to illustrate what we've been talking about. Abraham, in this text... <coughs> Verses 21 to 24, James cites two critical times in Abraham's faith journey that together illustrate this dynamic of faith cooperating with works. The first we've already mentioned, reference to verse 21, where Isaac is offered up to be sacrificed. The second is in verse 23, where Abraham believed God. Now, in your Bible, if you're in the habit of writing in your Bible, next to verse 21, I want you to write in the margin Genesis 22. Because it is in Genesis 22 that we have recorded chronologically, historically, the time that Abraham offered up his son Isaac. Then, next to verse 23, Write Genesis 15, because that's when faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. 
Now, the first thing I notice in our text is that chronologically, James puts them out of order. We're going to deal with Genesis 15 first. And by the way, the fact that Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, the fact that it happened first is really important. So let's deal with that first. Let me paraphrase the story for you. But really, to get to Genesis 15, you've got to start in Genesis 12. Genesis 12, at a critical time in Abraham's life, God comes to Abraham and basically says this, Abraham, I want you to bet everything you have on me. I want you to take all your chips, place them on one number, God. I'm asking you to trust me with every aspect of your life. Abraham says, okay. Again, this is a paraphrase. At that time, God gives Abraham, as it were, five cards. Now, take it easy. They're Uno cards. He has three cards facing up and two cards down. The three cards up are the things that you know. They're the things that Abraham knows. The two cards down are things that he doesn't know. God says, you're going to have to trust me with what's on those two cards. The three cards that are up, number one, a camel, number two, a tent, and number three, a promise. The promise had two parts. I'll give you land, and I will make you into a great nation. Now, the two cards that are down that Abraham can't see, pertain to this promise, land, nation. And God says, I'm not going to reveal to you, not yet, how you're going to become a great nation, Abraham. You're going to have to trust me for those things. That's Genesis 12. In Genesis 13, it's as though God turns over the first of the two cards as it relates to the promised land. Abraham has been traveling with his nephew Lot, and things have become very crowded because God has blessed both of them. So Abraham does something a little scary, a little crazy maybe if it were you or me. He turns to his nephew and he says, this is the land that God's given us. You pick what you want first. And Lot, it seems, if you've read the story, it seems that he chooses the better of the two options. On the surface, that's what it appears. So on the surface, it would appear that God, when he turned over the card, it's a joker. I don't have time to develop this, but it doesn't play out that way. A couple of you. All right, thank you. The second card is turned over in Genesis 15. And this card, this second one, pertains to the promise. It's related to how God was going to make Abraham the father of a great nation. And God says to Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. However, this card must appear as a joker to Abraham as well, because if you know the story, Abraham is how old at this time? He's at least 100 years old. And Sarah, his wife, is 75 years old. I'm going to give you a son. Right. 
When the promise was given, the Bible tells us this, that Abraham believed God. And at that moment, his faith, his belief alone, Genesis 15, verse 6, was reckoned to him as righteousness. That was his moment. That's when he prayed the prayer. That's when he signed the card. That's when he went forward at camp. That's when he came forward after a sermon. Abraham believed God that what his promise said was true. I want to add here this point about Abraham's faith journey. Abraham, like you and like me, in his faith journey, had times where he stumbled, wavered, and was weak. Just like you and me. Two quick examples. To save his own life, he lies to Pharaoh and tells him that Sarah is his sister, not his wife. Genesis 12, verses 10 through 20. And in relation to the promise of a son, Abraham and Sarah decide to help God out. Anybody? How many of us have tried to help God out? Some of you aren't so on it. They decide they're going to help God out with the promise story is found in Genesis 16 with the birth of Ishmael, who was born through Sarah's handmaiden, Hagar. Ishmael, however, was not born of faith in the promise and the maker of the promise. This child was born of flesh and through striving in their own strength and wisdom. And to this day, in a spiritual sense, an Ishmael is what you get when you and I don't by faith wait on God's promise, but we decide to give God a hand and make it happen on our own. And when you do that, what you give birth to in the spiritual realm is an Ishmael. And that's a whole other sermon. You understand Ishmael's descendants have been a problem for Israel ever since. So that's another sermon. The point is, Abraham, like you and like me, in his faith journey, had times where he stumbled, where he wavered, when he was weak. But while he had times of stumbling, wavering, and weakness, he had a living faith. How do you know? Well, because he said so. That's not how we know he had a living faith. Here's how we know, says James, In chapter 2, verse 21, James points to something, not what Abraham said, but something that he did. And what he did affirmed the fact that he indeed, even in his stumbling, had a living faith. For when he offered up Isaac, his son, when he did that, that was the proverbial leaf on the tree. That was the fruit on Abraham's tree. If you look at his whole life, there are other things that stand out. But for James, this is his point of illustration. The principle being, the behavior is what manifests the presence of the life of God. The behavior is what manifests the presence of the life of God. Genesis 22 is the story of what James refers to in James 2.21, keep in mind it comes 30 years after the promise was given. 30 years of waiting. 
30 years of after believing God for the promise, and 12 to 15 years after the promise had arrived. He's got a young boy. And God comes to Abraham again and says, Abraham, I want you to bet everything you have on me. Every hope, every dream, every plan, every aspiration that you have wrapped up, all those things wrapped up in your son, I want you to to give it to me. I want you to trust me for your life, for his life. I want you to trust me now, even at a time when you're beginning to doubt. Because you can't understand what I'm asking you to do. And in Genesis 22, verses 3 through 14, Abraham does what God asked him to do. Let's pull all that together. Pull it all together in regards to what James is trying to communicate in this text. The fact that Abraham offered his son up did not... (coughs) The fact that Abraham offered his son up did not make his faith real. The fact that Abraham offered up his son was not a saving act because we're not justified by our works. What it was and what it did is it revealed the faith that was already there. That his faith really was living. The offering of Isaac was the fruit on the tree. The offering of of Isaac was the leaves that come if the tree is really alive. James 2 Verse 22, you see that his faith and his actions were working together, were cooperating together, and his faith was was made complete by what he did. His faith was made visible. Application. Don't get too excited. This is a lengthy application, so don't start packing up just yet. Pulling all of this together, you need to ask a question. I need to ask a question. And the question is this. How do you know you have a living faith? How do you know you have a living faith? Because you raised your hand? Because you prayed a prayer? Because you signed a card at camp? In response to a message you heard, you walked to the front of the room and you prayed? How do I know that I have a living faith? I'm talking about me personally. How do I know if, as a 19-year-old punk, when I responded to an invitation to give my life to Jesus following a dramatization of the death and resurrection of Jesus, and I prayed a prayer, how do I know that I entered into a living faith? Here's how I know. Because 38 years later, this 19-year-old punk has the privilege of standing up on most Sundays proclaiming the excellencies of him who called me out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. That's how I know. 
whoa, so I got to become a pastor? No. You see, I know I have a living faith, not because I prayed a prayer that night, but because in the course of my life, including all of the stumbling and wavering and the times of doubt and the times that I got angry and argued with God, even when my faith was flopping on the floor like a fish out of water, Jesus Christ was the sweetest name I know. That's how I know. That, that's how I know. Now listen. When there comes in you a desire, stumbling, falling, when there comes in you a desire to know and do the will of God, did you catch that? When there comes in you even in the midst of stumbling and failing, when there comes in you the desire to know and do the will of God, what are you talking about? Talking about Philippians, what Paul tells us, Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. For it is God at work in you, causing you to both will and to work, willing to act according to his good pleasure. It's a really important verse in your faith journey to understand. How do I know the Spirit of God is in me? If you have a desire to do the will of God, where does that come from? Well, you're just a great person and you just kind of crank that up. No. That's how you know the Spirit of God dwells within you because he causes you he gives you the desire to pursue, not just dream about it, not just talk about it, not just read about it, but be engaged in it. And as God works through you by his spirit, the leaves come, the fruit come, and you and other people could point and go, God's at work in that person's life. Brennan Manning, in his book, Signature of Jesus, writes this regarding all of that. In the final analysis, faith is not the sum of our beliefs or the way of speaking or a way of thinking. It is a way of living that can only be articulated adequately in a living practice. We do, need, we do not need theories about Jesus we need to make him present in our time, in our culture, in our circumstances. Only the true practice of our Christian faith can we verify what we say we believe. If you really want to know what a man, what a woman believes, don't listen to what they say. Watch what they do. If you really want to know what a man or woman believes, don't listen to what they say. Watch what they do. So the question on this day is this. Do you believe? Do you believe? It is a question, it occurs to me, that I don't often ask that bluntly. But given a text like this, 
I dare not hedge from asking it that bluntly. Is your faith a living faith? How would you know? How can you tell? Are there any leaves on the tree? Is there any fruit of God coming from your life? Do you see over time transformation taking place? I'm not talking about a faith where you don't stumble. We all stumble in many ways. I'm not talking about times where you feel weak in your faith or wounded in your faith or frightened. All of those are living faith. I'm talking about, is there any evidence of life? Is there in your faith the kind of things that the Spirit of God, through living faith, produces? If not, if there are no leaves at all, the solution is not to try really hard to crank out a bunch of works. The solution is to come into a living faith. How? Well, if your faith is dead, if there's just no evidence of the life of God in you, what you need is a resurrection. And if you need a resurrection, the only place I know where you can get the resurrection power is at the foot of the cross and the throne of God. And at the foot of the cross, by the grace of God, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, ask for what you cannot produce on your own. You have to ask that your dead faith is made alive. Because if you do that, he will make you alive. And he will make you alive together with Christ and you will be seated with Christ in the heavenly realms and the Holy Spirit will come and dwell within you. You will have a brand new name, a brand new identity and a purpose and understanding for your life. Young people, maybe a conversation you want to have when you get home. I imagine many of you through Awana or Sunday school or at home with your parents, many of you have prayed. Prayed a prayer and asked Jesus into your life. It's an awesome thing. I'm talking to adults too. The question you need to ask yourself, maybe the question you need to ask with your parents, do you see the life of God in me? Is there any fruit? Are there any leaves? Am I more like Jesus now than I was a year ago? God wants you to have a living faith where the Spirit and the power of God comes from you because when people see that, they are drawn to it. When your classmate sees that, they're drawn to it. When your neighbor sees that, they're drawn to it. And in one way or another, they're going to ask you about 
the leaves on your tree because they don't have any on theirs and they want what you have. You cannot get this on your own. And so, young person, I asked you twice to draw a tree that represents you. I don't care which side you pick. I just want you to end this children's sermon this way. I want you to take your marker, your crayon on that tree that's you, but you draw a cross over it. Because at Easter, there were what? How many crosses? Scripture even refers to him as a tree. Once you turn one of those trees, the middle one, turn it into a cross. And either you get to give thanks and be excited about the fact that Jesus died for you and you know it and you've received it, or you can rejoice in the fact this morning that I want that. Jesus died for me and set me free. You could be four years old. You could be 84 years old. We all need the cross of Christ. Amen? And we, and the world needs to see Christ living through us. Amen? Whatever age you are, don't let the enemy beat you up. The Holy Spirit's talking to you and said, is there leaves, no leaves? If you would today go, I'm not sure I've had any leaves, though I've prayed a prayer. But I want leaves. I want God to change me. And before you leave, I'd ask you to come this way. And I'd love to talk with you. Father, what thrills me about kids Kids in our church is just a constant reminder of childlike faith. So easy to believe your promises. So easy to believe the stories that we find in Scripture. So easy to believe what we're told about you. God, may we all be renewed with childlike faith. And Father, for every young person in the room and every person in the room who's not so young, not including Carl, Father, I ask in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that your spirit would come upon us and draw us to yourself. Pray specifically for anyone who is unsure of their walk with you, of their relationship with you. Call them home today, I pray. Father, for the rest of us, may we lean into and embrace the things that you stir up in our hearts. Give us the will to it and the courage to act on it by your Spirit's leading and prompting and strength, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.